0: Let's turn now to the book of Psalms, chapter 110. Psalms 110. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Verse 1 of Psalm 110, in fact, is God's favorite Bible verse. We could make the argument uh, because it is the most quoted verse in all the Bible. In, in, in all the New Testament. Uh, in fact, this, this whole psalm is the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. Referenced at least 17 times in the New Testament. Always applied to the Lord Jesus when it is referenced. And so we're going to be looking at this glorious psalm together this morning on this Resurrection Sunday. Really seeing three great themes that show us the result of the resurrection. Seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, as king, king over all. The Lord Jesus as priest, the Lord Jesus even as warrior, as we see in this passage. So let's stand together under the authority of the word of God, as we hear now God's word from Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of the youth shall be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Almighty God, we thank you for your living supernatural inerrant word. We pray this morning on this glorious resurrection Sunday. That by your Spirit, through your Word, you would lift our eyes to see the risen Christ. That we would hope in Him, trust in Him, submit to Him. That by your Spirit, you would shape us into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray for myself, as I proclaim your Word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, if you look just at the top of this psalm, you see the superscription that's written there, a psalm of David. That's really important. Maybe, maybe more important than any other psalm. And remember in your Bibles, the headings are not inspired. In my Bible, just above the words of Psalm of David, it says, sit at my right hand. That's not inspired. Some, some editor added those words. The, the chapter numbers are not inspired. The, the, the verse numbers are not inspired. But these superscriptions are. These superscriptions in the Psalms really are the inspired word of God. And so this Psalm begins with a declaration that David is the one writing this. And that's crucial for our understanding of this Psalm. Why is it crucial for our understanding? Well, it's because of the next words. The Lord says to my Lord. Most of you are aware that in your English translation, if you see the word Lord, and it's in all capital letters, that that is the Hebrew word Yahweh, the name of God, the Almighty, the God of Israel. It's the four letters, Y-H-W-H. So this first sentence says, the Lord, Yahweh, the Almighty God of Israel says to my Lord. Well, that's why it's important that we know that David is the one writing this. Because this isn't, this isn't the Lord Yahweh speaking to David. It's not about David. He's not the Lord that Yahweh is speaking to. It's David's Lord that Yahweh is speaking to. And so what we see in Psalm 110, it begins with a divine conversation between God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ the Son, David's Lord, David's Master, It's astounding to think about this. This conversation actually happened. In Acts chapter 2, Peter tells us when it happened. It happened after the resurrection of Christ, when Christ ascended to the Father. These are the words that the Father said to the Son in that moment, and God has chosen to reveal that conversation, those words, to us. I find that astounding. I find that exciting. What is it that God says? Look at verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of the youth shall be yours. First thing we see is this, this picture of Jesus as king, this pronouncement of Jesus as king. After Jesus has been crucified, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven. God the Father Almighty says to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's it's a very important, very powerful, prophetic image. This is called Christ's heavenly session. Christ seated on the throne, ruling, reigning. This heavenly session is happening right now. Jesus Christ is seated right now on the throne at the right hand of the Father, ruling over this world, this, this entire world, ruling over it by his word. Ruling over it by his spirit. And these words, sit at my right hand, have, have huge significance. The, the, the picture of this. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. Jesus' redemptive work is completely finished. As He ascends into the right hand of power, His redemptive work is done. He's seated. In the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 28, we read these words. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there. And so they put a sponge of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So we talked about Friday night. These three words in English. It is finished. Really one word that Jesus originally uttered. To tell us stay. Never has one word contained so much meaning. Literally, it has been. It forever will be finished. And this is not a cry of despair. It's not a cry of disillusionment. It is a cry of triumph. Accomplished. It is finished. Jesus' work in redemption is complete. It is finished. He accomplished all that the Father sent Him to accomplish, particularly in His work of bearing the penalty for sin. As we saw on Friday night, there's no wrath left for God's people. There's no wrath left for us. There is no wrath left for the sin of repentant sinners. There is no more penalty to be paid for our sin. As we just read in Hebrews, Christ offered one sacrifice for all of our sin. We do not add to the finished work of Jesus. We do not find ourselves justified by Jesus' work plus our tears. Plus, our regrets, plus our remorse. We don't add to our justification by Jesus' work, plus our spiritual fervency. We don't find ourselves justified by God by Jesus' work, plus our vows and resolutions that we will try harder and we will do better. He sat down, it was finished. The work was accomplished and we rely on his finished work alone for our salvation. So that's the work of salvation. But just because Jesus' work in redemption is finished, he is not sitting in order to rest. He's not sitting as though he worked hard and now it's time to put his feet up and relax. He's seated like a judge on a bench. He is seated to rule. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. The right hand in the Old Testament—it's the position of authority and power. This is what it means for Christ to be seated. Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, verse nineteen: "What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places." Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. What what does it mean that that's that's who Christ is and where Christ is? What does it mean that, that he's far above every rule, every authority, every power, every dominion? Every name that is named. And not only in this age, but in the age to come. Well, part of what that means, Christian, is whatever it is you're facing, you don't have to be afraid. There's so many things it feels like we ought to be afraid of. But because Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, absolutely nothing will frustrate his plans. Those things that we fear, they fear him. Think of what that means. Kids, If you you sit in your bed at night and it's dark and you get afraid, you think of what might be there. When I was a kid, I had to have all my arms and legs under the bed, just this much of me out because any part of me that was out was fair game for whatever it was that was in my room. Those things you're afraid of, they're afraid of him. You need not fear. Jesus Christ is on the throne. Adults, our boogeymen, usually have suits on your uniforms, or they angrily shout, they angrily tweet. Those spirits that are driving them, they're afraid of him. They're afraid of the spirit that's in you. Nothing will frustrate his plans. No power, no authority. No, no, he, Paul uses these words for supernatural authorities. Rules, authorities, powers, dominions. Those are supernatural authorities. No, supernatural authorities must bow their knee before him. They fear him. He is far above them. It's not even close. Human authorities must bow their knee to him. He is far above them. It's not even close. None will be able to resist the triumph of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Not human and not supernatural. Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. He's the Lord of history. It's in his hands. He's unfolding it. We need not fear. That's good news in 2023. We live in a world that's afraid. But we need not be. We must not be. He says this, Christ is seated in this heavenly session until I make your enemies your footstool. So we get the time frame that this this happens from the ascension of Christ as the Father speaks to Him to sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Christ will rule from this glorious throne until the Father places all of His enemies under His feet. He will reign at the right hand of power until all, every last one, every single one of His enemies are subdued. And Paul tells us who the final enemy is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Many Christians live as though the first enemy to be destroyed is death. It's going to get terrible here. One phrase I hear commonly from theologians and pastors is, we lose down here. Christ wins, but we lose down here. It's as if the first enemy to be defeated is death. We get zapped out, like the left behind books tell us, and then he'll come deal with his enemies. Quite the opposite. The last enemy to be defeated is death. What does that mean? One theologian says this The world, the one we live in now, will be put to rights before the second coming. For the end of all things, the only enemy not destroyed through that advance of the gospel will be death itself, and even that enemy will be in confused retreat. The ramifications of this are many, but one thing that it means is this, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is ruling over all things, putting his enemies under his feet, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Though perhaps like the prophet Jeremiah, you don't get to see the fruit with your eyes. Your labor is not in vain. How does the risen Christ rule now? Well, first look at verse 2. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. As we said earlier, this psalm is a real conversation. It's a real conversation that took place when the Lord Jesus ascended. It is a conversation between God the Father Almighty and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 lets us listen to more of that same conversation. When Jesus ascended to heaven, God the Father said this to him. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So how's it going to work? How are his enemies going to be put under his feet? What does scripture tell us? Well, it tells us this. Jesus' enemies will be forcefully subjugated to him. They will be made to bow their knee and acknowledge his rule. This world we live in, filled with rebellion, shaking its fist in God's face, will be made to bow the knee. Then look at verse... Three. verse 3 here in psalm 110 your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments in other words god's people won't be forcefully subjugated they they love his reign they willingly embrace the kingship of the risen christ and so all people will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. All people will bow the knee, will acknowledge his lordship. They will either willingly bow or they will be made to bow. But make no mistake about it, the Lord Jesus Christ is king. There will be no rebels in his kingdom. And so, Paul says this in Philippians 2, verse 9, of the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore God has highly exalted him, Bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue in heaven and under and, and under the earth. Every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He, he's not saying there that there will be universal salvation, that every man, woman, child who has ever lived is going to, to ultimately be saved and be in heaven and love wins even after death. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying this, there will be universal acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is king, both by his enemies and by his disciples. His disciples do so willingly and worshipfully and joyfully, and his enemies will be made to acknowledge the truth. They will be made to acknowledge the king. Second thing we see here in Psalm 110 of Jesus is... Is his priesthood, verse 4. The Lord has sworn, will not change his mind. You are priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The, the, the only other mention of Melchizedek in the Old Testament is in Genesis. He is this king slash priest who Abraham offers a tithe to. The book of Hebrews mentions him a number of times in the New Testament. And applies it to this psalm and compares Melchizedek himself with the Lord Jesus Christ. In Israel, in the Old Testament, a king could not be a priest, according to the law of Moses. There are these two lines of authority, the king and the priest, and they have to be kept separate. In fact, if you remember the story of King Saul, King Saul lost his Kingship because he was attempting to act like a priest. And so, so this king, as being talked about in Psalm 110, he is not a priest in the order of Aaron. He's not a priest in the order of Levi. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, who was both king and priest. And God has appointed this king to be priest, in fact, to be the great high priest. Like he appointed Melchizedek. Melchizedek, we don't know anything about his lineage. We don't know where he came from. Nothing is told to us about him in Scripture. He just kind of appears out of nowhere in the text before Abraham as a priest of the Most High God. And so Jesus, the Messiah, is made priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He is both king and priest. And what is the job of the priest? The king rules. What does the priest do? The priest intercedes for men before God. Jesus is our priest. The one who, who intercedes on our behalf before God Almighty, before the righteous judge of the universe. And he does something that no other priest could do. It's the most incredible, most comforting News in the whole world. He intercedes for us effectually. His intercession is always 100% effectual. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. "The The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This can't be said of any other priest. Any other priest that would, that would stand for you, offering sacrifice to God, that would stand as it were between you and God. That priest eventually was going to die and would no longer be able to do that for you. But the author of Hebrews, or Paul in the sermon he's preaching, says to us that Jesus lives Forever. Forever to intercede, such that he is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. His intercession is always and eternally effectual. The intercession of this great high priest is always successful, it always works. All for whom he intercedes will be saved. And he ever lives to make intercession for them. But the story is not over yet. He is not just the king. He's not just the great high priest. We see Jesus the warrior here in this passage. Look on in verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment on the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Look again at that language there in those verses. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. I thought Easter was a day for like wearing pastel colors, for cute little bunnies, for little eggs, certainly for Reese's eggs. That's good. That's a good Easter tradition. Not for shattering kings. Not for wrath. Executing judgment on the nations, filling them with corpses. There's a church in Syracuse that has pictures with Jesus today. It's like at Christmas where you can have your pictures with Santa Claus, but some dude is blasphemously dressed as as Jesus and you can have your family pictures with him today at that church. I wonder if on the bottom of that caption they'll have like, He will shatter the nations and fill them with corpses. I don't suspect. I don't suspect. He will shatter the chiefs over the whole wide world. That does not sound like gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It does not sound like the hippie Jesus we have been accustomed to hearing about, who's for sure a pacifist. It's not the Jesus we hear much about these days, but it is the Jesus that the Bible talks about a lot. It is the Jesus that the Bible reveals to us. The wrath of the Lamb of God. It's offensive to an unbelieving world, many of whom call themselves Christians, but it is true. And it's good news. Does the world hate it? Yes. But it's true, and it's good news. Reminds me, Harry, Harry Truman was... Uh, was once on a campaign stop and a man yelled out on him in the midst of people coming at him and being protesting him and screaming at him and the man yelled, give them hell, Harry. He said, no, I just give them the truth and they think it's hell. The the truth is our love is hated by the world. Our truth is hated by the world but it's exactly what the world needs. We need to know that this is who Jesus is. We need to know that. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. People often misunderstand this statement. They think think of the church in a defensive posture, just holding off the assaults of Satan, holding off all the assaults of of hell. We, We hear this word that That the gates of hell won't prevail against it, and we we picture ourselves huddled in a corner behind the walls under attack, but somehow we're gonna hold on. Somehow our light is not going to be extinguished. That is not what Jesus is saying here. What is it that won't prevail? I will build my church, and what, what won't prevail? The gates of hell. Not the forces of hell. Not the cavalry of hell. The gates of hell. This is not about an army being unleashed from hell. This is about an army being unleashed upon the gates of hell. It's the gates of hell themselves. Think of of a castle surrounded by walls. The walls don't move. They're defensive structures. The picture that Jesus is painting is not that hell is on the attack and a desperate church in great fear and small numbers is hiding behind the walls, hanging on for dear life. No, Jesus paints the picture of a glorious, all-powerful, ruling God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, reigning and ruling whose church has been sent out. It is this church in great force and in great might coming against the gates of hell and it is hell on the inside of those gates, cowering, weak, fearful, and dying. That's the picture that Scripture paints. The enemies of Christ in fear, in retreat. How do we know that they're in retreat? Well, just look. Just look at how the devil is fighting for his life in the world today. It's Jesus Christ and his church that are on the attack and his enemies cannot hold him off. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is on the march tracking down his enemies until they can no longer escape his wrath. Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Christian, evil. The evil one is no match for the warrior who fights for you. No match. He's on the attack. He's after the evil one. He will pursue him. He has defeated him. He he has subjected Satan and all of his minions to open shame on the cross already. They are defeated. And he will continue to overtake him until he throws him in the lake of fire. Even the picture at the end of this psalm is a glorious one, verse 7. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. In the book of 1 Samuel chapter 30, The Amalekites have raided the city of Ziklag. They've burned the city. They've kidnapped the women and children, including two of David's wives. David and his men have been pursuing them so relentlessly that they come to the brook of Bezor and 200 of David's men are too exhausted to continue. And so they stay behind at the brook. But David and the rest of his men, his mightiest men, push on. They keep going. They pursue the Amalekites until they overtake them and destroy them. That's the picture here. As David writes this psalm, he is pursuing his enemies until they are utterly destroyed. That is your Savior. That is the risen Christ. He is not seated on a throne just sitting back going, I did a lot of hard work. I did a hard thing. Time to relax. No, no, no. He will vanquish all of his enemies. He will not let up for one moment in his mission. He will not turn aside. He will not take a break. He will not stop until he has accomplished it. He says that he will lift up his head. His head will be lifted up above all of his enemies, above all other heads. He will be victorious. He has already won. And so what does this mean for us, that this is who Jesus is? This is who the risen Christ is. This is what the risen Christ is doing. What does it mean that the Lord Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning? Well, the first thing it means is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the great pronunciation of the New Testament. Jesus Christ is Lord. Over and against, in the New Testament, the the oppression of Rome and, 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 and that all must, knees must bow before Caesar, and that all tongues must confess, Caesar is Lord. God's people say, no. Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. And not just of some invisible place. Not just of some ethereal, heavenly realm somewhere. That doesn't have much impact on us, not of some other dimension. Jesus is the Lord and the Master of Topeka, Indiana, and of Emma, and of Shipshawana, and of Goshen, and wherever you're from, and of these United States of America with our rebellious government. Jesus Christ is Lord everywhere, He's the King. He's reigning now. He will reign forever. His gospel will triumph in the earth. If you're a Christian, the risen Jesus is is the priest who ever lives to intercede on your behalf, making effectual intercession on your behalf. He's the warrior, powerful enough to defeat all of his enemies. Because of that, listen to what's promised. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 16. Behold, I have, I have created the smith who blows the fire out of coals, produces a weapon for its purpose. I've also created the ravager to destroy. Brad this morning so, so powerfully spoke to us in our, in our sunrise service of Of this same Jesus being beaten and crucified and hung on a tree, a tree which he created. A tree which he gave life to throughout its whole existence by by people who he tenderly watched over in their infancy and in their life growing up. Those those who he created. Isaiah is saying something very similar. The weapons that are coming against you, God says, I made those this ravaging evil that seems like it's going to overtake and destroy you i made it i control it. it says i have created the ravager to destroy it's not going to do anything i didn't make it to do at no moment is any of this out of control Here's what it means that Jesus is Lord. Isaiah goes on in in verse 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall refute, refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Their vindication from me declares the Lord. These things that are coming against you, I made them. I control them. And ultimately, no, they will not overtake you. They may not overtake you. I will not allow it. I will uphold you. No weapon fashioned against you shall prosper. What comfort is there in that? What joy is there in that? I I was listening to a a history podcast this week about Winston Churchill. And Churchill, at one point, he was involved in a lot of uh, war. Um, not just as a, as a military leader, but actually on the ground being shot at a lot. Churchill once said, There's nothing more exhilarating in the human existence than being shot at to no effect. <laughs> I thought, now isn't that the Christian life? No weapon formed against you shall prosper. There's absolutely nothing the enemy can do to us. Should we lose our lives, Christ sits on the throne. Nothing will happen to us that is outside of his loving control and his good purposes. There is such hope there. The Lord Jesus has already overcome the world. What what we're seeing play out in our days is what's called in the military a mop-up operation. The battles won. Victory is had and now we need to go and root out the enemy forces. We need to go find the enemy installations and we need to let them know in no uncertain terms the battle's over. You're defeated. The, the enemy is defeated. And we look around at the world today and we go, well, it sure doesn't seem like it. Yeah, he's a very active defeated enemy. It's a very ugly mop-up operation. He is filled with fear. He is in the death throes. It's important that we remember this then. In all of this, with with the the victory of Christ, with his rule, with his reign, with our assurance that all of his enemies will be put under his feet, with our assurance that no weapon formed against us will, will prosper, we need to know this. It is God who defines what that looks like for us. Our calling is still the way of the cross. We're still called to lay down our lives and to take up our cross. We are not called to strut through this world. How will the gospel triumph in the earth? It'll triumph the way it's always advanced. How's the kingdom of God going to advance? How's the gospel going to triumph? It's going to do it the way it's always done it. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But we do this. We live our lives in this dark world that hates us, that wants to come against us, that may take from us our physical lives. We do this in light of the resurrection. We do this in light of the ascension and the reign of Christ. We don't do this so that he'll win. We do this because he has won. So when we go out into battle, when we win by dying, we know that the risen Lord rules over everything. We know that nothing can come against us except that which is for our eternal good. How can we know that? How can we know that's true? We can know that's true because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And if Christ is risen and we are in him, Then the battle's won. Abraham Kuyper says, famously, many of you know this there's not one square inch over all of creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, Mine, this belongs to me. Such is our world. Such is our testimony. We take this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel that begins with our sinfulness and our need for redemption because of a holy God who does in fact rule and reign, who is in fact going to subjugate all of His enemies underneath of His reign. We do so because there is a God who has full king rights over all that He has created. And it is this same God who sent his Son. It is this same Jesus Christ who is even now putting his enemies under his feet, who willingly took on flesh and humbled himself. The greatest humbling that has ever happened. Taking on flesh, being tempted in every way, just as we are. Being cursed and rejected, despised and beaten spat upon crucified by his own creation he humbled himself to the point of death this same Jesus but God raised him up God raised him from the dead God has exalted him to the right hand there has never been a greater humbling and there has never been a greater exaltation this same Jesus is the one who rules and who reigns and in the one whose spirit dwells within us. The one who has promised to surely return for us, that we will be with him forever. It's he who calls us to himself. It's he who calls us Christians into his service to take this gospel, this good news to the world. This news that proclaims not only that, that Christ will rule over His enemies, but it proclaims you don't have to be one anymore. He will have you if you will come to Him. Only believe. Only come to Him. And He will have you. What glorious good news. What a glorious Savior. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your great salvation. Lord, we are humbled when we think about our unworthiness before You. We think, Lord, that we would have nothing to offer You, nothing to commend ourselves to You, but in Your grace and in Your mercy, You have seen fit to save us. Lord, we stand in awe of Your power and of Your might. Lord, we are are filled with comfort and hope at Your might, at Your rule, at Your reign, knowing that You are accomplishing all of Your purposes that all of Your good plans, all of Your good purposes will stand, that nothing can frustrate You. Lord, that even because You have placed us in Christ, no weapon formed against us will stand either. Lord, we rejoice. What mind could have conceived so great a God, so great a salvation? I pray, Lord, that You would fill Your people with the joy and the hope and the confidence and the humility that comes from believing the true Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would bear fruit in keeping with salvation. Fruit of joy and worship and reverence and humility and repentance. Lord, that we would, we would be bold and loving ambassadors for Your kingdom on this earth. And I pray, God, that You would put steel in our spine as we believe these truths. These aren't ivory tower truths disconnected from our lives. This is solid ground beneath our feet as we, Your church, arise and put our armor on and heed the call of Christ, our Captain. Pray, Lord, that You would make us faithful. Lord, give to us the strength that we need, the energy that we need to serve You faithfully and fruitfully in our lives and in this world.